National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you. Uh, Every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. So let's jump right into the topic today. I promise to address areas of national security that most people don't give much thought, and today we're going to dive into some of those topics, Central and South America specifically. Professor Al Montero earned his doctorate in 1997 from Columbia University. He's the senior editor of Latin American Politics and Society, a leading refereed journal. Professor Montero's current research program focuses upon the evolution of the developmental state and its variants in South America. Holding the Frank B. Kellogg Chair in the Department of Political Science at Carleton College, he teaches courses on comparative and international political economy, Latin American and Western European politics, comparative democratization, authoritarianism and corruption, and global public health. His current duties at Carleton include Director of Advising and as as an Associate Dean. Professor Montero is a prolific author, including the books Brazil, Reversal of Fortune, Brazilian Politics, Reforming a Democratic State in a Changing World, and Shifting States in Global Markets, Subnational Industrial Policy in Contemporary Brazil and Spain. He is co-editor with David Samuels of Decentralization and Democracy in Latin America. Professor Montero has published articles in various peer-reviewed journals, including Comparative Politics, The Journal of Politics in Latin America, West European Politics, The Journal of Developmental Development Studies, Latin American Research Review, Studies in Comparative International Development, and Latin American Politics and Society. Professor Al Montero, welcome to National Security This Week. Oh, thank you, John. It's it's wonderful to be here. It's uh, any opportunity that um, that I get to talk about Latin America with uh, with a broad audience um, is is, a, is an opportunity I take. So thank you for giving me that uh, chance. I know, I know you have a, a meeting at uh, at ten o'clock today, so we'll have mm-hmm. you out of here uh, before then in time to get back up to school. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and jump right in. And, and there's a lot to talk about today. So our, let's begin our discussion in South America and specifically with Brazil. Uh, President uh, Jair Bolsonaro is a colorful character. Uh, anybody mm-hmm. who's seen him on uh, on TV can probably attest. He was elected on a platform of reform to lead the Brazilian government. Mm-hmm. How's that working out for the people of Brazil? <laughs> That's a multi-layered question. Uh, the you know, it's I'm always reminded when when I get a question about Brazil of of the quip that, that Tom Jobim, the great composer, said about Brazil. Brazil, it's not for novices. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Bolsonaro ran for the presidency and won in 2018 on a, on a campaign that was very simple. Uh, it's, it was reduced to the three Bs, uh, bullets, Bible, and boy, or boy, which is cow in, in Portuguese. Um, so the three Bs are the essence of his politics. It's extreme right-wing, right-wing politics. In the first two years of, of the current term, uh, he didn't do very well, right? The, the economy was ravaged uh, by recession. Uh, unemployment is at 14%, which is a high uh, in urban unemployment terms in Brazil. 
um, uh, economic growth has has fallen and is and is slated because of because of the pandemic, which has also ravaged Brazil. Um, it's it's going to be in the neg- in negative territory for the foreseeable future. Um, so he's not doing well in terms of economic policy, social policy, in terms of poverty. Poverty has gotten worse. Uh, healthcare access, we know that th- some of the contradictions of the healthcare system in Brazil have been exposed by the pandemic. And and so his political strategy has shifted in recent months. Um, he has um, often campaigned against the system as a populist, which is typical, of course, of populists. But now he's uh, forced to cut a deal with center and center-right parties in the Congress, the very same parties that impeached his his predecessor, Dilma Rousseff. Um, and those parties are, are, are called the Big Center or Centron. Uh, the Centron dates back to the times of the transition to democracy in Brazil in the 1980s. So he's changing. He's 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 changing the the music to this dance um, for the next two years until we have a presidential election in 2022. Mm-hmm. The most notable figure in Brazilian politics, Lula da Silva, the leftist right. former president, has now been cleared at least initially. We'll see. There's some other judges that will speak on this, but has been cleared to be a candidate. Um, in that race, so that will be, and it's now being sort of shaped and 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 framed as a fight between democracy, the forces of democracy, and the forces of authoritarianism. Okay, is that how you say it playing out? Well, it could play out that way. Yes, I mean, I there again, there aren't any other figures that could emerge to challenge Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo, which is a vulgar form of <laughs> of populism. Really, it's just personalistic politics and. Um, again, you know, he's going to get a lot of support, Bolsonaro will, from evangelicals, particularly the Pentecostal movement, which is uh, probably stronger in Brazil than it is in the United States, although it came from the United States uh, historically. Yeah. Uh, he has strong support among landowners. Um, so uh, these, are the, these are the forces that are in favor of deforestation. They make money off of that. Soy growers and exporters, uh, people who want to see more Chinese investment in Brazil to, to make that possible. Um, they believe that's a pro-growth agenda, but it's a rapacious pro-growth agenda. We've seen it before in, in Brazil. Um, and then there are the, the folks who, who kind of embrace his hard line on crime, mm-hmm. on urban crime. The Brazilian cities are extremely violent, to say the least. They're not necessarily the most violent in all of Latin America. That honor, that dubious honor is reserved for Central America. But um, you know, they're, they're, the urban crime is is typically the first or second big issue in surveys of Brazilians. They they want someone to deal with that, and they think that at least uh, speaking the way Bolsonaro does, that he's been uh, successful or or can be successful in fighting urban crime. So you mentioned uh, the COVID nineteen spread in Brazil. Uh, I know that the numbers in Brazil have been pretty strong, and mm. there's a Brazilian variant of COVID nineteen. Mm, yeah. Uh, from your study of Brazil, uh, why do you think that uh, the spread of of COVID nineteen happened uh, so rapidly, and uh, what do you think the impact has been from the Brazilian variant in Brazil and expanding around the world? Uh, it's actually reached here in Minnesota, as a matter of fact. 
Well, you know, the Brazilian political system is in some ways a lot like the American political system. It is a federal structure. Um, it's one of five federal constitutional federal countries in Latin America. And it's quite a patchwork when you consider the healthcare system. Now, the healthcare system in Brazil is actually more unified than it is in this country, oh. where we have 50 different, you know, healthcare, healthcare system plus a federalized Medicaid, Medicaid, uh, Medicare system. Um, in Brazil, according to the Constitution, everybody has a right to healthcare. But the reality on the ground is very different. Um, uh, there are public hospitals and private hospitals, but the, the, oftentimes the public hospitals give a minimum of care, and we're completely overwhelmed by COVID. Sure. So most Brazilians are, are poor. Sixty uh, percent of the population would be classified as, as poor by any standard, certainly by the World Bank standard. Uh, and so most of the population that, that has suffered from this pandemic have, have had uneven access to, to health care. Um, also, in urban areas, particularly in shantytowns, life is necessarily very cramped. Yeah. People live and work together in proximity, and that can't be avoided. Um, so the, the disease really seeks out these conditions. It's worked uh, wonderfully for COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID has spread faster there than in virtually any other country in the world. And as you, you point out, there's a Brazilian variant. Um, the, the, the saddest case, of course, is the, the Amazonian city of Manaus. It's the largest city in the, the region that's known as the Amazon, the state of the Amazon. Um, there, this variant is uh, pretty serious. We, we think it's as serious as the South African variant. Mm-hmm. We know that it's present in the United States. Um, and, you know, it's the same old story. It's a race between vaccination and, um, and uh, disease. And Brazil is behind uh, terribly. They, they have access to the Chinese vaccine. They have some AstraZeneca vaccine. AstraZeneca actually did some of their global trials in Brazil as well as the UK. Um, but there's just simply not enough of the vaccine to go around. And it's, and it's sad because Brazil is per- perhaps the only country in Latin America with a significant pharmaceutical industry of okay. its own. Oh that could, like India, produce its own vaccines. And that's one of the great failures of the Bolsonaro presidency. So they're not producing any of their own vaccines? Not really. Wow. Not really. Uh, they, they certainly have the manufacturing capacity to. They're the most industrialized economy in Latin America. Um, they have a lot of capital. It's a $3 trillion economy. Yeah. So one could say, well, it's a developing country, but it's a developing country that's the eighth largest in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a larger GDP than the U.K. or France. Uh, they do have the technology, they do have the capacity, they have the educated uh, uh, employees, that, uh, technicians and clinicians that can do the work. It just wasn't mobilized. Hmm. So on, on, on that count, we just started talking a little bit about Brazil's economy. A few years ago, the national security professionals that I know, and if you re- read those things pretty regularly, were discussing the rise of the quote-unquote BRIC countries, Mm -hmm. and that term BRIC, B-R-I-C, stands Mm -hmm. for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Mm -hmm. Uh, The economic rise of those uh, four nations seemed unstoppable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has continued on pretty good for for China, not so much for Russia. Uh, We'll see about India, but uh, Brazil. Uh, where, do, where does the Brazilian economy stand today? Are they strong mm-hmm. importers, exporters? Uh, what, what are their top uh, export uh, uh, products that they might have? Well, you know, like much of the rest of Latin America, Brazil uh, enjoyed a period of sustained growth in the 2000s. Largely, it was known as the commodity boom. 
and uh, Brazilian products, particularly soy exports to China, was played a very big part in that. Um, another product is beef. Uh, Brazil has the largest cattle herd on the planet. Uh, this is another cause of deforestation. Right? Yeah. Um, Brazilian agro-industry is some of the most advanced agro-industry in the world, let alone the developing world. So that's a very big piece of it as well. A lot of uh, multinational corporations in Europe, Asia, and the United States uh, produce uh, advanced products there, cars, of course, typically. Brazil started producing cars in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a sense of, the, of the, the vast manufacturing capacity, much of it located in the south of the country, in Sao Paulo, Rio, Rio Grande do Sul, those states in the south. Highly developed. Um, the problem is uh, employment. Um, 70% of the Brazilian economy operates like our own on domestic consumption. Mm. So with very high levels of unemployment, with low levels of capital, and then the, you know, the other thing is that the public sector is running large primary deficits and, and very, very large public debt. Uh, so the capacity of the state, of the, of the national government, to try to promote economic growth, the way that, say, the COVID relief plan is trying to do in, the, in this country, mm-hmm. that's very limited because the public debt is approaching 100% of, of GDP in Brazil. So they're constrained as far as what they can do with the public sector. They're very dependent on a global market, particularly a Chinese market, that is recovering, but very, very slowly, because of course it's a pandemic, right? Everyone's everyone's affected by this, right. so we don't expect economic growth to to reverse and and become positive here for the foreseeable twelve months or so. It's going to be a very tough ride into that presidential campaign in uh, in twenty twenty two. Uh, so let me let me follow up on with one question on that. Uh, so we saw after Bolsonaro was elected. Uh, and we were in the middle of the kind of the, the trade war with China. Uh, China had dramatically cut its uh, imports of American ag products. Uh, and suddenly we saw the, a, a lot of clearing of the rainforest down there, a lot of burning of the rainforest. Was mm-hmm. that specifically to take advantage of that uh, the trade opportunity to export uh, goods from Brazil to China? Yeah, they don't. I mean, they don't deforest. They don't turn on a dime to deforest. They, the process of deforestation has been going on for several years. Sure. It was reversed under the Lula and partially under the first term of Dilma Rousseff's presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, but deforestation rates started increasing even under Dilma. And so that's a, that's a process that's been happening independently of, of Bolsonaro and the political shifts. But because of the role of landowners in Bolsonaro's support base, and landowners particularly in the parties that make up the Centrão that would now support him in the Congress, mm-hmm. um, uh, deforestation rates are, are going to probably uh, not only continue, but they're probably going to expand. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, are, are they using that as, is it some way a reaction to the, the commodity-centeredness of Brazilian growth? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, but again, you know, China is the key. If China continues to buy the soy, they're also buying from Argentina and sure. they're buying from the United States. But you're right, the shift in trade policy in the U.S. Uh, at least temporarily buoyed those markets uh, for Argentine and Brazilian producers. You know, Latin Americans don't consume soy. Yeah, It's not a staple product, but the Chinese need soy to feed their people, a lot of them, right? So for, for Brazil, that is a great structural advantage that they have. And if the American, if American farmers, particularly soy farmers, are going to continue to have the, their knees cut out from under them, that only helps South American soy producers. Yeah. 
Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Al Montero, and we're discussing the situation in Central and South America. Uh, so, Al, let's shift over to Venezuela now. Uh, mm-hmm. President Nicolas Maduro remains in control. Is Venezuela essentially a failed state at this point, uh, or, or is there a possibility Maduro could succeed in turning the nation around? Well, you know, Venezuela is a saddest story in all of Latin America because it's it has suffered a decline, and I'd argue you'd have to you go back to the 1960s and 70s. Venezuela was considered one of the richest countries in Latin America. It had developed its oil reserves at that time, and so it was already an industrialized, highly urbanized country. Eighty percent of Venezuelans live in cities. Mm. That, and you look around Latin America, that's not always the case. You know, you'd have to go to the southern cone, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay. Those, those are highly developed class structures that look very much like our own or class structures in Western Europe. Venezuela had that in the in the 60s and 70s, and... Um, really lost it beginning in the 90s as their political institutions started to come apart for lots of reasons that we can talk about, but I think we need a separate show for that. (laughs) Venezuela is a very complicated case. The rise of Hugo Chavez, like Bolsonaro, I mean, mean, this is a running theme in Latin America for the last couple of decades. You have the emergence of these sort of populist figures. I mean, we've had our own with Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. obviously. So, so now we have a lot of political scientists kind of looking into, is this something that happens in presidential democracies? Because they're all presidential democracies, including including our own. Um, but back to Venezuela, the decay of political institutions in Venezuela and the replacement of the traditional political parties that were responsible for that earlier period of economic prosperity by nothing. Right, The replacement was by Chavismo, this ideology centered on one guy. Mm-hmm. And so he dies of cancer in 2013. He, he names this loyalist, Maduro, uh, before he dies as his, as his successor. And so you basically have this sort of cult of personality and a set of loose institutions very much connected to the presidency, the power of the presidency, that is you know, distributing resources to the poor. Right, That's his support base. 90% of the Venezuelan people now are classified as poor. So what's happened, of course, and we've seen this in the news, Venezuelans have left. Most of them have left to Colombia. Recently, the Colombian government has given them a certain protected status. Um, many Venezuelans have left the country to come to the United States. There are you know, a quarter of a million Venezuelans uh, now uh, somewhere in, in the United States, mostly in South Florida. Arguably, they played a role in the presidential election and certainly shifting, helping to shift Florida uh, uh, to Trump or keeping it in Trump's column uh, in, the, in the last year, the presidential election of last year. Um, Venezuelan growth is, uh, is decimated. Um, and then if we start talking about the political system, it's just really madurismo. Um, the opposition is divided. There are regional and state elections later this year, but there's no clear sign that any candidate is going to emerge in the in the opposition. You know that back in December, the pro-government forces took back control of the legislature of the National Congress. Mm. So now there are no national institutions that in any way are associated with the opposition. And and winning a few governorships is not is not going to do it. It hasn't done it in the past. So Maduro is in a politically, um, I would say, I wouldn't say strong position, but he's in a in a defensible position. Economically, it's a disaster, and socially, it's a disaster for the mm-hmm. country. 
so I actually read uh, the BBC had reported in December that there are about 5 million Venezuelans who have fled the country due to yeah. poverty, corruption, yeah. economic collapse, and not to mention yeah. a lack of any meaningful health yeah. services. Yeah. Do you think refugees from Venezuela, Venezuela would return to help rebuild their country if there was a political change? Or are they going to just stay away at this point? You know, the history of exiles going back to their country after a significant political change is is a, is an interesting story, right? We've seen that in Latin America, the most notable case is Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, two million people, and note that Chile has only 18 million people. Two million people were forced into exile by Pinochet's authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. And much of that exile did return during the course of the 1990s after the transition to democracy. Many of those elites, uh, many of those exiles were elites. They were intellectuals. They were poli- former politicians, members of the of the political party class that was deposed um, when Allende was overthrown in 1973. They played a role, a significant role, in the first phase of the transition to democracy. So there's a that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, of course, is Cuba, where there was an exile, but uh, the members of those of that exile never were able to return, still have not been able to return. Many of them, of course, that left in the 60s are either too elderly or, or dead. Yeah. Um, so that's not going to play much of a role. The longer an exile exists out of power, less likely the less likely it is that they'll return, but also if whatever follows Maduro doesn't create political space to give that exile some role to play, mm-hmm. they they won't go back. They won't go back at all. That's the the lesson of the Chilean case. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Al Montero, and we're discussing the situation in Central and South America. Uh, so let's shift over now, uh, I guess move a little north to, mm-hmm. to Central America. Mm-hmm. Uh, just last week, and in, actually in the paper today, uh, there are some allegations against Honduran President uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez mm. uh, regarding drug trafficking conspiracy mm. uh, to ship cocaine to the U.S., uh, he himself has, of course, rejected such charges, but his his own brother has been convicted in New York. What is the current situation in Honduras? <laughs> well, like other leaders in Central America and elsewhere in Latin America, Hernandez is looking to uh, reinforce his impunity from the law. Um, there have been, of course, other presidents that have been under that kind of investigation, or there's been evidence against them. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I always think about Ernesto Samper, the former Colombian president in the mid-90s, where there were wiretaps that showed that he was taking money into his campaign from the Cali cartel. I mean, that was really damning evidence. Well, he survived um, because, again, the political allies protect their own. Right? Uh, presidents in Latin America have extraordinary powers to reward and to punish. So Hernandez right now has a consolidated position within the National Party, which is a right-wing uh, party, traditional party in Honduras. Uh, there are elections coming up. He has a, a tremendous uh, control over state resources. So obviously he has lots of allies, uh, potentially, that can insulate him from investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, the OAS, the Organization of American States um, um, agency that was uh, – uh, doing corruption investigation in Honduras was thrown out of the country. So you don't have an international 
organization anymore looking over their shoulder. There are no domestic courts or prosecutors that are not otherwise politically allied or or bribable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a political system without accountability, without those mechanisms of accountability. Um, Hernandez is probably going to get away with it, uh, despite the fact that there's testimony in an American federal court. I, I think I, I read he was uh, he took office in 2014. So Originally, he, yes. yes, and then he ran again in, a, in an election in which many believe uh, the, the the vote was bought. It was corrupt, and and so the, uh, that's one of the reasons why the OS wanted to investigate him and and others in his party. Yeah. So he's had plenty of time to 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 engineer his, uh, yeah. his strength position of strength. Yeah, and and again, the history in Latin America is is that you can you have these actors that are accused of corruption, and maybe you know you have testimony and you have the goods, right? You have wiretaps and everything, yeah. and they're able to avoid accountability and create a, a politics of impunity, as it's called. How about uh, how about Guatemala? Uh, can you summarize the situation for the average citizen in Guatemala today? Yeah, well, I mean, Guatemala has all of the problems of the so-called Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala. So a lot of crime, uh, very low levels of economic growth, and very simple economies, largely exports of commodities like bananas and, and some agro agricultural goods. Um, it's also one of these countries that's suffering migration uh, to through Mexico, trying to get into the United States, um, largely in response to the crime element, um, and particularly a crime element that has a lot to do with extortion rackets, mm-hmm. uh, gang-related extortion. Uh, Guatemala is an extremely poor country. It is the poorest in Central America, although Honduras is also almost equally poor uh, in comparison to Guatemala. Uh, their former president, Jimmy Morales, was a comedian, uh, so claim to fame was nothing more than just being an entertainer. Um, the p- political party system really isn't really very notable. It, it, the political system isn't divided among traditional parties the way it has been historically in democratic El Salvador or somewhat in Honduras and, and other parts of Central America like Costa Rica. Um, so Guatemala doesn't have a political system that's very well defined around right and left. And so you get these populist actors that just emerge. And what's distinctive about these actors and, and, and what determines their power is their relationship with security forces. Oh, yeah. Their relationship with the military. Yeah. And that harkens back to a past in which civil wars um, destroyed so much of the population of these Northern Triangle countries. They're still living with the legacy of those of those conflicts. 70s and 80s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Guatemala now has a new president, Giamate, Alejandro Giamate is his, is his name. He's kind of a non-factor in Guatemalan politics, uh, many times ran for president or mayor or something, and... Uh, not very, um, not very accomplished. Though his claim to fame, he's only been in power a few months. His claim, his claim to fame, or at least the, the what he wants to do, is create what he calls a, a wall of prosperity uh, in the northern part of the country, which is the most poor, you know, the poorest part of the country, in order to prevent migration, to create an incentive for people to stay in Guatemala. The last thing I'll say about this is it is often not thought about in the United States. Uh, the the Transit of people from Central America mm-hmm. really undercuts the ability of these places to ever have a growing economy. Mm-hmm. When you think about what are the causes of economic growth, population growth, 
is the most important, right? Demographics shape patterns of economic growth historically and sure. everywhere in everywhere in the world. And you look at the average age of Guatemalan, Honduran, and El Salvadoran migrants. The one these are the people who are waiting on the other side of the wall in northern Mexico. They're young. They're young. Right? Yeah. They're young. And many of them are educated. Yeah. These are the people that would otherwise have started businesses, would otherwise have created ideas to start businesses, would have been responsible for economic growth in these countries. So it's a it's a human tragedy. Mm. How about Nicaragua? What's happening there? Well, Nicaragua is probably even sadder as a case politically because Nicaragua is the, is the country that has really slid, in, has slid into authoritarianism under the the presidency of Daniel Ortega. Ortega has been in power now for close to 13 years, which is extraordinary. Yes, he was elected initially, but he's also shaped um, the courts. He's packed them. He's shaped prosecutorial offices. He's put loyalists in power. His model is Venezuela. It's Maduro and Chavismo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the model for Venezuela is Cuba. So that <laughs> you don't have to say much more than that. <laughs> so, you know, Nicaragua is in sad shape economically, but they don't have the crime and violent problems of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, largely because the security forces have been more or less professional by Central American standards, and that is because the the prior Sandinista government. Um, that's one of the few things that the Sandinistas did that had institutional legacy that was was positive for Nicaragua. But it's a country that's undergoing a decline in terms of poverty and inequality, um, social policy, economically, uh, well, in terms of the capacity of the, of the government to respond with social policy, it's limited, mm-hmm. again, because they're so dependent on, on exports and the global marketplace. That has greatly limited their ability to, to grow economically in the last year or so. And, yeah, COVID, COVID plays, plays a role there. Sure. Um, the one interesting thing I can say about Daniel Ortega is that it's not clear that his positioning vis-a-vis the Biden administration is going to be as antagonistic as the relationship that Maduro clearly needs to have with the Biden administration. Um, You know, for Maduro, it's a point of of kind of bringing together the opposition under the idea that the the Americans are going to invade tomorrow. So it just kind of keeps society behind Madurismo. Because there's nothing else uh, behind it. It's fear-mongering. It's fear-mongering, yeah. Yeah, it's fear-mongering. I mean, Daniel Ortega certainly did that as the head of the Sandinista government in the 1980s. I mean, but there was actually an attempt right more than an attempt there was a there was a policy under the cold war mm-hmm. and they felt encircled um uh, the, the situation is not that like that right now um ortega probably is going to install his wife as the next president so there's a there's going to be what in latin america is called the tendency of continuismo or just keeping power and not letting go but that's still having elections so it looks like a democracy but power is so concentrated in the hands of this one family. It's ironic because the Nicaragua was, of course, dominated by the Somoza family for most right. of the 20th century. Right. So it's in some ways we've come full circle in Nicaragua. There's this uh, familial basis or dynastic basis to Nicaraguan politics. That's the direction they're going in. 
Uh, so let's uh, let's finish up our discussions in in Central America with uh, El Salvador. Mm. Uh, make 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 sure I say this right. Yeah. Uh, Nayib Bukele. Bukele. Yeah. Uh, recently elected populist uh, president. Right. right. Uh, leads the New Ideas Party. New Ideas. Uh, he just won over the people during this uh, this most recent campaign. How do you see his presidency uh, shaping El Salvador's future? Well, the the preface to this question is that the traditional parties, the FMLN, the Farigundo Marti, which is the old guerrillas right. in the Civil War, right? The FMLN, and they made their transition to democracy in 1992, right? The FMLN has, uh, and the Arena Party, the Arena Party is the conservative far right party, right? They So the political system was divided for the better part of, well, the last couple of decades mm-hmm. between these two war, previously warring faction in the Civil War in the 70s and, and, and early 80s. Um, the support for those parties has collapsed. We just had legislative elections in which the New Ideas Party, which only, which basically is a party that supports one guy, Bukele, now has a supermajority in the legislature. Hmm. Bukele has a 90% approval rating. Wow. Now, you look around the world, you're not going to find a lot of approval ratings of any president or prime minister nope. at 90%, right? And how is he able to do it? He's able to do it because he, like Bolsonaro and some of these other figures that I've talked about, on both the right and the left, they impart an image of having a strong hand on the tiller of the state. Right. So they, they get the benefits of the support that in Latin America has traditionally gone to military and other kinds of dictators. But they don't have to eliminate elections because otherwise that would bring the attention of the United States and Europe and the OAS and all that. And that can be that that's unnecessary. Right. So they keep the veneer of a democracy. But Bukele also behind the scenes has very strong and strengthening ties to the military in El Salvador. Mm. Um, not too long ago, just a few months ago, there was a uh, piece of legislation before the Congress, this was before the recent elections, where the FMLN and the Arena Party still had a majority of seats in the Congress. And Bukele was asking for about $109 million uh, for security forces to fight crime and, and otherwise give them new equipment. Mm-hmm. And in order to force the hand of the two parties, he he marched into the Congress with soldiers. <laughs> he sat in the chair of the president of the assembly and essentially threatened the legislature. Now, that, of course, for everyone who had any memories of the Civil War in El Salvador, harken back to the battle days. Mm-hmm. Bukele is also a 30-something, I think he's 39. So he's a, the first millennial president anywhere in Latin America. So he has no real memory of the civil war you know maybe some of the effects of it but not not the actual fear and horror that led to hundreds of thousands of central americans overall dying and tens of thousands of el salvadorans fleeing or dying in that in that war so that's i think an early sign that he's going to take this popularity and he's going to use it in ways that will undermine democracy to the extent that El Salvador has had a democracy. That's one of the great themes in Latin America right now is the shift between or the battle between political liberalism, and I don't mean liberalism in the U.S. sense, but of supporting political democracy, political liberalism versus illiberalism. 
And that's, we mentioned this before, in the coming fight, we think, between Lula and Bolsonaro in 2022. Right, right. Uh, so we have just a few minutes left, uh, and you've mentioned uh, Cuba a little bit. Mm. Uh, we could probably spend an entire show just talking about probably. Cuba. Maybe I'll have you yeah. back uh, in the fall De- or something. Definitely, we'll do that. yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Trump administration rolled back virtually all of the Obama administration's efforts to normalize, uh, to some degree anyway, yeah. Yeah. our relationship with Cuba. Yeah. And even here in Minnesota, uh, we have sort of a bipartisan approach for our congressional yeah. delegation that was yeah. trying to open up Cuba to right. uh, trade with for our right. farmers. Do you think that Biden uh, Biden brings back some of the Obama policies toward Cuba, and, and should he? Well, I think he will. Um, the, the, the devil's always going to be in the details of how far he will go and how far he can go. I mean, Cuba policy is one of the only areas of American foreign policy in which the Congress, not the presidency, has an inordinate amount of influence. It should be recalled that the current embargo basically started as the so-called Helms-Burton bill in the 1990s when Clinton was president. Now, the the original embargo was initiated by Kennedy in response to the nationalization of American properties. But the, the current embargo that we have on Cuba was really uh, – it really comes out of the Helms-Burton law, and that was a much tighter regime – uh, tightening things down during a period that in Cuba was called the special period where the, you know, the disappearance of the Soviet Union and Soviet aid led to a profound economic and social crisis. Uh, Cuba was the only country in Latin America in the 90s that saw a decline in average caloric intake, which is stunning. I mean, you don't see that outside of Africa and maybe Haiti anywhere else. Um, so the Biden administration has some options here. They can go back to the Obama policy, which would allow for more capital to flow to the island. And that's really what the Cubans need, yeah. capital. The government of Cuba, though, is not going to change no. under these conditions. No. Okay, And that's something that one has to keep in mind. The Communist Party of Cuba is very much in control of the island. I've been to Cuba many times. I have family in Cuba. I've taken uh, students and alums to Cuba. And I will tell you that what the Cubans, what ordinary Cubans you talk to want is the opportunity to start their own businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want, they need capital. They need technology. They believe they can lift their own country up. But they need to have a chance to do that. And so under the Obama policy, what I saw, and I I saw Cuba before Obama's policy and after and with Obama's policy, what I saw was uh, a period of time in which capital started to flow uh, through remittances and uh, Cubans in exile that would go back and start businesses on the island, restaurants and services, taxis and all kinds of things. Cubans are very entrepreneurial people. I say that as a Cuban myself. I'm a Cuban-American. I was born in South Florida. My parents were Cuban immigrants. Um, Cubans love to start enterprises. Um, They're very much pocketbook voters in Florida, right? Um, And so the people on the island, Cubans on the island, are no different. They want to improve the prosperity of of their own families. So there's an opportunity here to make Cubans better off, but I'm not sure that that opportunity is going to extend to the political system where the Communist Party wants capital, but they want to keep control of the island. They don't want to lose control to any alternative uh, points of power that might emerge. They're not going to allow opposition parties to form. It's, it's rare that they even allow dissidents 
uh, to speak outside of Cuba. So the more they feel encircled by the United States, the tighter their own grip domestically becomes on the island. And that's what we've seen under Trump. Yeah. Well, we'll get you back in the fall. We'll talk just about Cuba oh, yeah. because well, we uh, can go, one we of the interesting things is it. that the European countries have ignored that uh, embargo for quite some time. Now, oh, of so. course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now they're not showing up because of COVID. Right. So, yeah. 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 Well, we've come to the end of our of our show today. Uh, Professor Al Montero, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on National Security This Week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week and enjoy St. Patrick's Day. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Locally owned 